the release of the fast-acting antidepressant Davulati got us thinking about an older strategy to speed up antidepressants, benzodiazepines. So we're bringing you this Thursday throwback. Do benzodiazepines treat depression? Benzos and sleep meds rarely earn a mention in textbooks on depression these days. But that has not always been the case. Today, in part one of a two-part series, we'll open up a forgotten repository of psychiatric research where a stack of about 50 controlled trials has been archived away, suggesting that the GABAergic benzos might actually treat depression. Welcome to the Carlat Psychiatry Podcast, keeping psychiatry honest since 2003. I'm Chris Aiken, the editor-in-chief of the Carlat Psychiatry Report. And I'm Kelly Newsom, a psychiatric NP and a dedicated reader of every issue. Stay tuned to the very end of this episode, where we'll update it with some new research. Nothing is more tormenting to a melancholic than to lie awake for several hours in the early morning, alone with his morbid thoughts and his intense desire for the peace of sleep. Judicious prescription of the proper dosage of the right drug is most rewarding to such a patient. That was from Frank Ide's 1961 textbook, Recognizing the Depressed Patient. And the right drug he was talking about was the barbiturates. Soon after the book's release, barbiturates were replaced with benzodiazepines, and the benzos were later supplanted by the Z-hypnotics, at least for sleep. That sounds like progress, but really we aren't too far from Dr. Ide's world. All of these drugs are GABAergic, and their main difference is in safety, not efficacy. In fact, the older versions are arguably more potent than the newer GABAergics we use today. But they were also more toxic and more addictive. Barbiturates were fatal in overdose on their own, while benzos mainly cause overdose deaths when combined with other drugs like opioids or alcohol. The Z-hypnotics, like Zolpidem, Ambien, have been with us since the late 1980s, and we're still debating whether they lead to dependence or significant overdose problems. Today, medical science recognizes that some folks aren't helped by relaxing exercises. In cases of difficult tension and nervous apprehension, doctors are now prescribing an ataraxic medicine. Ataraxia means peace of mind, and that, even more than money, is what most of us want to find. And through all these changes, the GABAergic medications have remained a common player in the therapy of depression since before the 1950s. They've always occupied an awkward place. Practitioners use them, but don't quite accept them. Regulators discourage them, and patients appreciate them, sometimes too much. In this two-part series, we'll cover the uncomfortable history, starting with the barbiturates and benzodiazepines in depression. We'll pick up with part two, where we'll explore efforts to treat depression and anxiety disorders with the Z-hypnotics, particularly azopiclone. Are you tense, anxious, worried, always tired but can't fall asleep? Are you afraid you're losing your grip? A little while after Dr. Ide's book came out, another pioneering psychopharmacologist, Dr. Carl Rickles, 
released a controlled trial comparing three medications in depression. He looked at the barbiturate, phenobarbital, the benzodiazepine, diazepam, that's Valium, and the antidepressant amitriptyline in 138 patients with depression. Surprisingly, he found no difference in the outcomes, even when he stratified the patients by anxiety. Studies like this encouraged doctors to continue using GABAergic medications in depression, even though they were not classified as antidepressants. But the definition of depression was also shifting during these times, and Frank Ide's book had a lot to do with that. Before Dr. Ide's book came out, depression was diagnosed in the severe, melancholic cases, and these patients were usually treated in the hospital. The patients we now call depressed in outpatient practice were more likely called anxious or neurotic in the 1950s. Among them, the more affluent were treated with psychoanalysis. But most Americans, about 1 in 10 of Americans, that's 1 in 10 Americans, not 1 in 10 people with anxiety disorders, were treated with the GABAergic barbiturates, or a barbiturate-like compound that became the first psych med to reach blockbuster status, meprobamate, which was marketed under the deceptively safe middle-class name Milltown. It was the success of Milltown that prompted the search for a safer GABAergic, which came out in 1960 as chlordiazepoxide, or Librium, the first benzodiazepine. Dr. Ide believed that many of these Americans who were taking sedatives from their PCP or psychiatrist really suffered from depression, and he wrote this book to help them recognize and treat it. It's rare for a single book to change medical practice, but Ides did, with a little help from a friend. Merck Pharmaceuticals had just released the tricyclic antidepressant amitriptyline, Elevil, in the same year that Dr. Ides' book came out. And Ide had served as a consultant as the drug was developed. So Merck bought 50,000 copies of Ides' textbook and delivered it to every primary care doctor in the country. The investment paid off and doctors soon had a new explanation for the stressed-out, glass-half-empty, worried and demoralized patients that have been seeking medical help for over a thousand years at least. They were depressed. The strategy paid off for Merck, as amitriptyline went on to become the best-selling tricyclic, even though it was not the first tricyclic to be launched. And while the book shifted things a bit towards antidepressants, it didn't quite put an end to the GABAergic line of treatment. Benzodiazepines gradually replaced the barbiturates, and by the 1970s, they were as common as the barbiturates had been in the 1950s. One in ten Americans were taking them. Valium works promptly to relieve excessive anxiety and apprehension. Side effects other than drowsiness, fatigue, and ataxia are rarely encountered. Within days, the typical patient feels significantly calmer, better able to cope with his condition. As anxiety diminishes, so do secondary depressive symptoms in the psychoneurotic patient. The patient finds it easier to feel hopeful about the future. The benzos were faster acting and better tolerated than the antidepressants were, so many doctors preferred them for milder cases of depression. 
Some psychiatrists argued that the benzos should be reclassified as antidepressants, while others countered that they didn't treat core symptoms of depression, and any therapeutic effect they brought about was likely due to the diagnostic muddling of depression and anxiety that was happening all over the place and is still going on. One of those naysayers was a young Alan Schatzberg, who is better known today as the author of two APA textbooks on psychopharmacology. In 1978, Dr. Schatzberg published a paper in the Archives of General Psychiatry, known today as JAMA Psych, where he reviewed 20 controlled trials of benzos in depression. His paper is kind of interesting because it was before meta-analyses became popular, but he did his own style of meta-analysis, classifying each paper based on whether the benzos came out as better, equal, or worse than the antidepressants. In the end, the benzos were more often the losers than the winners, and when they did win, it was often because the antidepressant was dosed too low. Schatzberg concluded that benzodiazepines helped sleep and anxiety in depressed patients, and that when they did improve mood, it was usually a secondary effect of their anxiolytic and sedative benefits. In his view, the benzodiazepines did not target core symptoms of depression, like anhedonia, low motivation, and psychomotor retardation. In most fields of medicine, that would have killed the argument, but in psychiatry, ideas have a way of resurfacing. Three years after Dr. Schatzberg's article, a new kind of benzodiazepine was released, the high-potency triazola benzodiazepine alprazolam, Xanax. This benzo has a triazol ring added to its benzodiazepine structure, which some believe makes alprazolam resemble a tricyclic antidepressant. Both drugs have a benzene ring fused to other rings. And so, a new series of studies was launched, this time testing alprazolam in depression. When your mind and muscles are relaxed, your body pleasantly tired, rather than nervously exhausted, you're not only free of worries, you are no longer troubled by insomnia. Alprazolam, Xanax, has accumulated enough controlled trials in depression that the uninitiated might assume it was an antidepressant. It was used as monotherapy in 21 randomized controlled trials involving 2,700 subjects. These studies compared alprazolam to placebo and or another antidepressant, usually a tricyclic. Alprazolam generally worked as well as the antidepressant, not just for anxiety, but sometimes for the core symptoms of depression as well. The typical dose was 3 mg a day. Not surprisingly, alprazolam worked faster than the antidepressants and was better tolerated. Alprazolam's antidepressant potential was given the green light in two Cochrane reviews, which is pretty hard to achieve. The Cochrane group is so conservative, they usually conclude that there's not enough evidence to support anything we do. And even Dr. Schatzberg has come around. In the latest edition of his Manual of Psychopharmacology, he mentions that alprazolam, alone among the benzodiazepines, has direct antidepressant effects. Alprazolam is not FDA-approved for depression, but the FDA allowed the labeling to state that alprazolam is effective for anxiety associated with depression. On the other hand, the FDA recognized that its antidepressant action can go too far. Alprazolam is the benzo that is most associated with manic induction in case reports, 
and these are mentioned in the package insert as well. Although the bulk of this benzodepression research supports alprazolam, some psychiatrists believe that alprazolam's antidepressant effects are not unique and extend to all benzos. We spoke with Giovanni Fava, who recently published a systematic review and meta-analysis of 38 controlled trials on benzos and depression, and he did not think that the antidepressant effects were unique to alprazolam. In his analysis, the research supported other benzos as well, such as the first benzo, chlordiazepoxide Librium. Dr. Fava pulled together an international team of six psychiatrists, including Carl Rickles. They sliced up the data in various ways to try to parse out which kinds of depression responded best to the benzodiazepines. But surprisingly, no type rose to the top. Anxious depression was just as likely to respond to a benzo as a tricyclic. However, Dr. Fava did note that most of the depressions in the benzo literature were mild cases, and that limitation is in line with the problem that other authors have noted. Most have concluded that the benzos, including alprazolam, do not work as well in classic melancholic depression. This is usually the more severe type, where patients have early morning awakening, guilty rumination, low appetite, psychomotor changes, and an unreactive mood that is distinct from ordinary sadness. Melancholic depression has always been thought of as a more biologically based of the depressive syndromes, and in some ways the lack of response to a benzodiazepine validates the idea that this is really a unique syndrome that requires a very specific treatment. Relaxation comes from conquering both nervous and physical tensions by calming both mind and muscles. But the bigger drawback to all this benzodiazepine research is that we have no long-term studies on benzos in depression, and there are clear concerns about dependence, tolerance, and withdrawal, not to mention its abuse liability. Some psychiatrists have argued that the SSRIs are just as bad, with a withdrawal syndrome of their own and suggestive, but not conclusive, evidence of tolerance. But let's be clear, the withdrawal syndrome on benzos is far worse and more dangerous, and SSRIs do not have a street value. Concerns about their long-term effects and abuse potential probably explains why so few psychiatrists use alprazolam as monotherapy in depression. But many do prescribe a benzo when starting an antidepressant. A popular strategy is to start a benzo while waiting for the antidepressant to kick in, and then taper the benzo off after a month or two. There are 10 controlled trials evaluating this strategy, and it does speed up the antidepressant effect, but after a month, this kind of augmentation doesn't seem to make a difference. The hard part is getting patients off the benzo. You really have to prepare them for that step, because these drugs do have rewarding effects. About 1 in 10 patients with depression receive a benzo with their initial antidepressant prescription, and about one in eight of those are still on the benzo a year later. But while this strategy does have risks, it probably helps patients remain in treatment and tolerate any initial side effects on the antidepressant, many of which, like nausea, insomnia, and restlessness, improve with benzodiazepines. If you're going to do this, alprazolam is probably the way to go, as it has the most evidence. But if your concern is addiction, you may want to use a benzo that's slower to act and less rewarding like lorazepam or oxazepam. It makes those who fear they're about to quit feel like they're ready to begin. 
bidding their darkened spirits goodbye for the calming peace of a cloudless sky. But before we wrap this up, let's pause and remember what many of us were taught in medical school. Depression is a known side effect of benzodiazepines, particularly with long-term use. It's also a problem with barbiturates. Depression on barbiturates is one of the reasons that these drugs have fallen out of favor in epilepsy. Besides the fact that these GABAergic medications are sedating and slow down the mind and body, benzodiazepines have psychological effects that are not desirable. They blunt emotions, although you could argue that SSRIs do the same thing, causing an apathy syndrome that often extends beyond sexual function. But here's one difference between the two drugs that interests me. SSRIs tend to improve the ability to accurately recognize emotional expression in other people's faces, while benzodiazepines do not improve that and may worsen it. We know this from studies in normal people as well as depressed people on these medications. And last year, we covered a new study that showed benzodiazepines impair the ability to recognize angry faces. Well, that might sound like a pleasant la-la land at first, but imagine if every time you made someone angry, you were unable to recognize what was going on. Your friends and lovers might dismiss you as out of touch or get so angry at your non-responsiveness that they explode. Benzodiazepines also impair cognition with long-term use, and I'm particularly concerned by the finding that they impair problem-solving ability, as poor problem-solving skills are one of the main reasons patients take them. Benzodiazepines seem to decrease learning during psychotherapy, and one wonders if they decrease the ability to learn from challenging stressors and the ability to process difficult emotions across the board. In part two of this podcast, we'll get into the latest iteration of the GABAergic story, as investigators have looked at whether the Z-hypnotics improve non-sleep symptoms in patients with depression, anxiety, schizophrenia, and pain disorders. You're going to recognize a lot of the same themes in that line of research, questions about whether the benefits are direct effects of the medications or indirect effects of improving sleep whether the benefits are short-term, long-term, and conflicting evidence about whether the Z-hypnotics treat depression or cause it. For myself, I'm in an uncomfortable position with all this. We've said a lot of good things about the benzos today, and we've pointed out a lot of problems. All of our drugs do some good and do some harm, but we can do a lot of harm when we're lured into thinking that certain psychiatric medications are as wholesome as apple pie, which, come to think of it, really isn't that wholesome. It is an uncomfortable position, but there's still a lot you can do with this knowledge, however uncertain it is. Like, here's a case I saw this week. A 55-year-old man with panic disorder came to me on 6 milligrams a day of alprazolam. That seems high, but it's actually within the normal dose range for panic. Anyway, he was doing really well, but had read that benzos were bad for the brain and wanted to come off it. So he slowly tapered down the alprazolam over the past year. His panic did not return, and he's pretty free of anxiety, but something else happened. 
he gradually got more and more depressed as we lowered the dose. We could try an antidepressant at this point, but he never tolerated them very well. So we raised his alprazolam back up a bit and his depression got better. Look out for that kind of reaction in your own practice. And while we don't recommend long-term benzodiazepines as a routine therapy for depression, there are always refractory cases that don't respond to anything else. And frankly, we're also undecided on whether alprazolam is the one to go with when a patient has depression and you need to use a benzo, say, to treat comorbid panic disorder. 21 studies is pretty solid support for alprazolam's antidepressant effects, but there are also reasons to avoid this particular benzo. Alprazolam has a higher abuse potential than other benzos, a higher overdose potential when taken with opioids, and its long duration and hepatic metabolism make it less desirable in the elderly and medically ill where short-acting benzos that are not metabolized through the liver, like lorazepam and oxazepam, are often better choices. And now for the word of the day, the NBAC test. Have you ever struggled with, say, a dense treatise on psychopharmacology and wished you could raise your IQ by three points? That's what the NBAC test promises to do. Now, if you don't think three points sounds like a lot, take it from Steve Martin, who has a self-declared IQ of 142. Here's what the comedian describes in his book, Pure Drivel. How I Joined Mensa Being a member of Mensa means that you are a genius with an IQ of at least 132. I worried about the arbitrary 132 cutoff point until I met someone with an IQ of 131, and honestly, they were a bit slow on the uptake. The NBAC test is a test of working memory developed in the 1950s, but it gained attention in 2008 when a controlled trial in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences found that regular practice with this test increased fluid IQ, which measures problem-solving and reasoning skills. The original paper was criticized for methodological weaknesses, but it was followed by 20 controlled studies that together suggest that regular practice with the NBAC test has a small but real effect on intelligence, equivalent to a 3-4 to four point increase in IQ. The test is a little like the card-matching game memory or concentration that children play, but instead of remembering cards, you have to remember letters. Here's how it works. Someone reads or shows you a series of letters, and every time they read one that is a repeat from three letters ago, you press a button. Let's try it out now. C. J. O. C. Beep. Got it. Q. L. C. Beep. K. L. You missed one, Dr. Aiken. I said L two letters back. You only got the C's. Not easy. To get it right, I have to keep the last three letters in my head while listening to the new letters, looking for patterns, and dumping the old letters from my working memory as the new ones come in. The difficulty can be adjusted further by requiring you to recognize items from two times back, three times back, that's getting harder, four times back, etc. Hence the name NBAC test. There's also the dual NBAC test, where you basically have to do this thing twice at the same time, once with letters and once with shapes. 
It's kind of like playing two chess games at the same time. Most of the studies on IQ were actually done with the dual end back, but I didn't find the game very pleasant and have decided just to stick with my natural-born IQ. Still, the NBAC test is important because the cognitive gains it brings, although small, are generalizable, which is rare in this kind of research. In other words, even though it is just a test of working memory, regular practice brings about improvement in broader cognitive skills. The NBAC is also commonly used to test for working memory in psychiatric disorders, and next week's podcast will feature a new app that lets you measure and track cognitive functioning in patients with four well-validated tests, the Choice Reaction Time Test, the Digit Symbol Substitution Test, the Trail Making Test, and the NBAC Test. If you want to try it out, Google NBAC. That's the letter N. There's a lot of free versions online. Follow us on Twitter, where Dr. Aiken is continuing his marathon of posting one practice-changing study a day. Today's study looks at whether an isometric metabolite of sertraline, Zoloft, called dazotraline, treats ADHD. Today is the first Monday of the month, and you know what that means. A new episode of Pocket Psychiatrist is out, which you can share with your patients. On today's episode, Dr. Greg Sazmar teaches a mindfulness breathing skill. If you'd like to earn CMEs for these Carlat articles, stop We reran this episode. It was from March of 2021 to get people thinking about this new medication, Ovulity, and whether it's similar or different to the old strategy of using benzodiazepines to augment and accelerate antidepressants. And in listening to it, I had to listen to it because I forget a lot of what we've said in these old podcasts, I do notice one important difference. Remember, in the benzodiazepine studies, the addition of the benzo made no difference after 30 days compared to antidepressant alone. It simply accelerated the response, but it didn't enhance the overall response. That is different with ovulity, which both accelerates the response and leads to greater improvement in depression after 30 days compared to bupropion alone. The Carlat Report has operated free of advertising since 2003. Well, okay, we did include two ads in this episode but they were for historical purposes only, and we assure you that money did not change hands. One was a 1950s public service announcement for Adorax, that's hydroxyzine, called The Relaxed Housewife. And the other was an educational video from the 1970s encouraging cardiologists to prescribe Valium, diazepam, to help their post-MI patients engage in rehabilitation and exercise. Join us next Thursday for part two of this throwback where we'll look at Z-hypnotics in depression. You can relax. Now, doesn't that feel good? <laughs>